Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery and I'm excited to have Nick Milanovic, who's a founder of the week, uh, This Week in Fintech, a global digest of financial technology news and the Fintech Fund, an early stage venture capital fund. He, uh, Nick was earlier working in business development and strategy at Google Finance, and he was earlier the head of strategy at Petal, and he has previously worked at Funding Circle, an online marketplace for business loans. Uh, Nick holds a, a BF from, a uh, bachelor's from Stanford University. Welcome to the show, Nick. Thank you, thank you, Roy. I really appreciate you having me on. Awesome. So uh, you know, I've been I've been following your journey. I'm I'm a avid reader of uh, of your newsletter. I've been uh, to uh, to a couple of events here in London. Uh, big big fan of how you built a media empire, and now you're running your fund. Uh, you know, how, how did you, your your career start in finance, and what got you excited about getting to this world of fintech and and startups? Well, it's very generous of you to say media empire. I wouldn't say that we're there yet, but um, we have a fantastic team working together on it. And hopefully, you know, one day we will be an empire. Um, it's a good question. I actually, you know, a lot of fintech people come from financial services and normally that means, you know, uh, banking. But for me, I actually got my start in microfinance. Um, and if I were going to really pretend that this is part of a master plan, I would say that uh, that path traces back to 11th grade when I was 16 in economics class. And we watched uh, a few movies in class about the Grameen Bank and Muhammad Yunus in Bangladesh starting up uh, early microfinance programs. Um, and I always thought microfinance is fascinating as a way to leverage market forces to help uh, reduce inequality and help poor households. Um, so I started working in microfinance, but I actually um, had some reservations about working for grant-funded organizations and just the dynamics of what happens when your organization is entirely dependent on grants to sustain its operations. So when I started uh, learning more about fintech and got introduced to the co-founders at Funding Circle, uh, I was really excited to see somebody taking the internet startup model to um, improving financial services for people. So I started working in fintech um, a little over a decade ago, and it's been exciting to see how much that space has grown since. I think that's that's super interesting. I've, I've seen you you've been in that industry for such a long time, and you know what made you made you start this week in uh, in fintech, and uh, you know I also read that you reached ten thousand members uh, as subscribers. You know any any advice for a podcaster like me who's still struggling <laughs> to break the ten thousand subscriber mark? Uh, what's what's been the success for you? Yeah, it's been it's been really exciting to see it grow. I'm just happy that it's not only my mom reading it anymore. Um, yeah. I actually started it as an internal newsletter just to my team um, because there wasn't one simple place to keep track of everything going on in fintech um, through a weekly update. There were a few fintech-focused publications, but none of them did a great job effectively summarizing um, everything that was happening in the space on a week-to-week -week basis. Um, and so that's why I started it. Um, I forwarded it to a couple friends uh, off my team, and they said, hey, you know, sign me up. I want to subscribe. And the newsletter really grew from there. Um, it's been exciting. It's been almost three years of writing the newsletter now. Um, we have, you know, 22,000 subscribers and growing. Um, we have, uh, you know, editor uh, in the UK, Michael Jenkins, an editor in India, Osborne Saldana, and an editor in Mexico, Christine Chang, uh, each of whom focus on publishing regional newsletters. And uh, 
if you end up running into anybody who you think would be a good writer for an Africa-focused This Week in FinTech or a China one, we're looking to expand more. Awesome. You know, I've, I've met Michael Jenkins, one of uh, some of the emails in, in London. I think, uh, I, th I think it's, it's, uh, I've always learned a lot from him. But how, how did you assemble a team across in these uh, cities and how much time does these contributors spend uh, on, on the newsletters and are they working full time for you? No, I'm the only person working full time on the newsletter and business right now. But I will say, um, you know, the people I just mentioned, along with uh, we have a 12 person team, um, Christina, who runs events, Michelle, who does all of our profiles, Nia, who's do doing our social uh, media, uh, Helen, who just joined to run our podcast, and Elisa on events as well, Sophie on premium content, um, Mohammed on the uh, policy edition. We have like a big team. Everybody's working part time. We're putting in a ton of time and effort onto what we're doing. Um, and I'm just really happy that we have uh, such a group of bright people with us to help us, uh, you know, put more interesting information together and create more uh, kind of insightful uh, products and network connections for the fintech community. So there's a lot of work that goes into, you know, keeping this going. Interesting. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been, as I mentioned earlier, I've been to a couple of the events. Uh, in fact, there's an event which is happening tomorrow. Uh, but uh, how, how do you, how do you go about, you know, getting sponsors for your, uh, for your, for your meetups and for your newsletters? Uh, how did, how did that go about start? Um, so, so far, all of our sponsorship uh, interest has been inbound. Um, mm -hmm. We have, you know, 22,000 readers and a big enough brand that we have a lot of companies, luckily, who are interested in sponsoring us as we continue to grow so that they can get their key messages out to the fintech community. Um, but Alex Gillette from Rise recently just joined us part-time as our head of revenue. Um, and he's helping us be more thoughtful about how we scale and going out uh, and reaching out to other prospective sponsors um, so that we can continue to fund the business. Got it. And, uh, you know, uh, you, you've also started a fund, uh, well, which is the FinTech fund. You know, what what uh, what made you start it and what's the thesis for the, for the, for the fund? In isolation. Um, so I started writing the newsletter about three years ago and then started uh, an angel investing syndicate about two years ago. Okay. Um, and so at the one year mark, I kind of looked at what had gone well and what hadn't gone so well, the syndicate, what had gone really well was we were getting allocations and really competitive deals with really good FinTech companies. Um, what hadn't gone so well is that because it was a syndicate and everybody was writing out of their own pocketbooks, yeah. uh, the check size is pretty small. So we get offered the chance to invest hundred thousand dollars and we only invest $50,000. Um, and so that's why I started the fund as a fixed capital vehicle, but it's really focused on the same opportunities invest in really high quality fintech companies, very early stage, pre-seed and seed stage. Um, and so I started working on it about a year ago, but we officially closed the fund um, in the beginning of this year um, and been just focused on finding great founding teams to back now. Interesting, and are you geography agnostic or are you only investing in US? We are geography agnostic, um, you know, there isn't necessarily a constraint or a target mix between the U.S. and international for us. Um, but generally, a lot of the most interesting opportunities for financial services innovation um, are outside of the U.S. now. A lot of ideas in a lot of areas in the U.S. have been kind of picked over for the last uh, you know, 10 years, definitely, but especially with the growth and funding for fintech companies over the last three years. Um, there's a lot of competition for you know, smaller and smaller increments of financial services. Um, now, that won't be the case forever. Um, we have 
connected to a few founding teams that we're really excited about in the US who are finding innovative ways to tackle different problems um, or to build things that are um, honestly uh, uh, wholesale new products. Um, and so I think that there is still a lot of opportunity, but FinTech has kind of hit uh, one maturity plateau in the US and it'll be a while before there's an opportunity to uh, kind of scale a new innovation curve and hit the next plateau. Um, meanwhile, outside of the US, I think you have a lot of greenfield opportunities where you can take a model that works um, and cross apply it to a local context. So, you know, probably one of the best examples in the world is Nubank, which took the Capital One model for banking um, using data to be able to effectively uh, underwrite and uh, differentiate consumers um, and then uh, basically cross apply that model to Brazil um, using the kind of penetration of mobile phones to offer credit and banking services to people who are unbanked in the country for the first time, and then scale that up into being, you know, a financial behemoth with a full suite of financial products, all offered, you know, online or through people's phones. Interesting. And you know, how how do you analyze, especially when it comes to early stage startups? How do you analyze uh, the trail of people, product, and market? What what is more important to you? Um, so at the stage that we're investing in, which is pre-seed and seed, it's normally um, a founding team focused bet. Now, that's not the only signal, but it's definitely the most important set of signals. Um, and what that means is, uh, in all likelihood, there's not a lot of traction. Um, we don't have much in the way of customer metrics yet. And so what we're looking at is, um, is the founding team a strong pair? Um, do they complement each other's skill sets and weaknesses? Uh, do they have experience working together beforehand? Um, do their backgrounds and their exposure and experience match the problem that they're trying to solve? Are they familiar with the problem space? And have they specifically felt this pain point before? Um, is the solution that they're building the right solution? And has it been tried before? And if it was tried and it failed, um, why did that solution fail? And what are they doing differently to avoid the same issues? So it's a lot about the story and the vision and the founding team's fit to actually going out and building that vision and their ability to put a great team around them to do that. Today, I have an interesting stat for you to denote that the founder of Beautiful Lives increased the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash socialpilot to get a 14-day free trial. Got it. And, uh, you know, you, you, you mentioned you look at international uh, deals as well. How, how do you do due diligence on startups, which are where, you know, the, the team is spread across and they're remote based? Uh, the same way that we're doing this. Um, <laughs> you know, the majority of founders that we've backed are people that we've never actually met in person before. Mm -hmm. uh, and that dynamic has only really been possible over the last two years since people got used to more and more remote meetings. Um, and it's exciting because it means that there's, you know, qualitatively not really much of a difference between meeting a founder remotely in the U.S. or internationally. Um, but we do take measures to ensure that we can quality control um, for geographies that we're not as familiar with. So we still run the syndicate, which has 300 fintech people in it to basically act as an outsourced uh, investment committee and diligence new opportunities. Um, we have a really broad network of people who are experts in fintech in different geographies that we can always tap when we're doing diligence. Um, and as a rule, we don't invest in uh, quote unquote party rounds. Um, we don't invest if there's not a lead investor. So we'll only make an investment decision if there is um, a, a venture capital firm leading the round. And normally for international investments, this means that there has to be uh, a local uh, VC uh, participating or leading the round um, so that we're 
uh, so that we have a, a point of reference that we can touch base with in order to get local context and understand uh, kind of why they're backing this specific company. Interesting. And, uh, you, you know, Nick, you, you mentioned you, should, you still run a syndicate. I was just, uh, and I tried my hands on running a syndicate, right? But uh, I wasn't that, that successful. But how do you make sure that you have higher chances of closing on a syndicate deal, especially when you're doing a lot of deals in a year? So the syndicate will invest alongside the uh, fund itself. So the syndicate okay. will write, um, you know, one group check and then the fund will write a check. Um, and then we'll just uh, end up uh, financing the business with the aggregate amount from the fund and syndicate. Got it. And uh, you know, I also realized that, you know, you, you have some great LPs, uh, especially uh, from, uh, you know, investors and angels like uh, Jay Gibson, who was, who was earlier a guest on, on the show, as well as uh, Shil Menard, uh, Shil Ramkrishnan, and some really high quality uh, investors backing you. Um, how, how do you go about building a relationship uh, with with such investors and um, uh, and and how do you how do you make sure that you are able to update the investors about uh, uh, and the LPs about, you know, whatever deals that you syndicate? Um, you know, luckily, a lot of our LPs are people who with whom I already had a relationship um, just through publishing This Week in Fintech, through working together, um, through being in the fintech space for a while. Um, right. You know, Jake and Shiel have been phenomenally successful with what they've built at Better Tomorrow. And I still feel like it's really early for them. So given how successful they already are, I'm excited to see how far things go. Um, but they're both people that I consider mentors in the space. And they were very immediately supportive very early on. Um, and so what matters to me a lot more honestly than just getting checks written from these LPs is really having them as mentors, having them as advocates and having them provide a lot of support um, and advice uh, as I grow this fund. Um, because it is you know, definitely still a learning curve. And while I like to think that we're doing things the right way, it's, it's mostly because we have such a great network of support system around us. Got it. Interesting. And, um, you know, uh, this, uh, you know, there's been a market uh, meltdown and uh, looks like, you know, we could be heading into, into a recession. Uh, how, how, do you, how do you assess what is happening in the market today? And, you know, what advice are you giving to founders uh, on how to manage runaway and burn? Uh, there's like a variety of analogies that I use to talk about this. And I don't know, they're all equally painful. But uh, the one I like the most is pre-seed and seed stage investing is kind of like space exploration. If you're going to send a mission to Mars, well, it doesn't really matter if there's a storm on Mars today because the mission is not going to arrive there for another six months. You need to be thinking about what the condition is going to be like when the mission does want to land in the future, um, and not what conditions are like now. So. Um, it's interesting. We are in a market downturn. Um, if it sustains, um, you know, the correction will turn into a recession and uh, valuations started, started compressing in public markets. But that has trickled down quickly to late stage private and it's now trickling down to early stage private. Um, I think this is a I think this is a fantastic thing, honestly, for the fintech space. Um, valuations have been growing outsized to actual performance and development for the last few years um, in a way that has made a lot of companies relatively um, overvalued com compared to kind of how far along they are. Um, and I think it's made it really hard for people to join companies and get a compelling return on their equity. Um, if your company is already raising at a high sticker valuation, um, then you as an employee aren't gonna get the same kind of multiple on your equity by being an early participant as you otherwise would outside of that environment. Um, 
it's also become really attractive to become a fintech founder um, and start a fintech company because it was a pretty sure bet over the last two years that you'd be able to find funding. Um, and so I think the correction is good for both of those things because it will um, help us shake out some of the weaker ideas in fintech, um, some of the you know tourist founders who created fintech companies just because they knew they would get funded will probably end up moving on to the next thing. Um, and the result will be that they'll free up a lot of talent um, to join the actually promising, um, you know, well-designed and principled uh, fintech startups that are still building in this space. So I think, uh, you know, it's going to be easier for founders to recruit higher quality talent, um, easier for talent to get compensated on good terms, and easier to build without the competition of having, you know, five fast followers immediately funded by VCs marketing against you. Interesting to see that you know downturns can 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 always have you know good opportunities for founders as well as employees. Well, um, what in your view is causing the the the, the massive public uh, market drops? Is is it because of the inflation rates and the interest rates going down? Is that the well, one of the main reasons why we're seeing such a main drop? Um, we have been operating in a singularly low rate environment since the global financial crisis in 2008. Um, and it's made it harder for central banks to effectively conduct monetary policy without being able to raise interest rates. And, you know, in the case of Europe, you know, having negative rates uh, up until the last week um, for, for, for years and years. Um, the start of the correction was really in late December when the Fed hinted that it would be raising rates four times this year. And I was a little bit surprised by the severity of the correction because the Fed said that they may raise rates four times by 25 basis points for a total of 100 bips. And if you look just like three or four years ago in 2017, you know, the Fed rate was something like 250 bips. Um, and so it's not like it's been that long since we've had a higher Fed rate, um, which was then lowered in COVID to stimulate the economy. Um, I think it's like that was a combination of um, modern monetary theory policy of printing more dollars plus the stimulus package that we received um, throughout COVID, the uh, you know, billions and billions of dollars that are effectively printed to provide a stimulus to the economy, um, all of which you know, had the natural conclusion of inflating asset prices and asset prices everywhere. Real estate has gone up, construction materials have gone up, raw um, you know, imports have gone up, um, the consumer uh, price indices have all gone up. And so, um, you know, it's a natural result of printing money and uh, keeping rates low. And so I think it's very important for us to have this kind of correction without creating systemic shocks in order to get the train back on the rails. Got it. And, and, and how long do you think, do you, do you assess this, you know, uh, downturn to happen? Is it going to be a couple of, couple of months or years? Oh, uh, I mean, I'm just an early stage fintech investor. I, I don't really have any kind of special insights in the market. My speculations would probably be no better than uh, a monkey throwing darts at this point. Um, you know, Fred Wilson wrote about this about a week ago, and he has much more longitudinal experience than I do. And I like his framework. He he thinks that this recession most closely resembles the post-stagflation recession of the early 80s. Um, so in the late 70s, there were uh, price shocks in that we had inflation and uh, constriction of oil supply um, through the formation of OPEC that uh, created uh, stagnant economic growth at the same time as high inflation, um, which, norm which hadn't really coincided before. Normally, high inflation corresponded with overzealous growth. 
Um, and so the recession that came out of that in the early 80s pattern matches a little bit to uh, the um, inflation-driven consolidation of prices that we're seeing right now. Um, and I like that model. And if you cross-apply that model, then we're probably looking at an 18-month correction that could um, even sustain to a three-year correction. But it's by all accounts, it looks like it's unlikely to be as calamitous as the 2008 global financial crisis, um, because this isn't really like a black swan event uncovering, um, you know, systemic uh, structural issues with the global financial system. It's just, you know, again, similar to like the dog combo in the 2000. There was a run up in asset prices, now it's consolidating. Mailman is an email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions and making your days calmer and more productive, you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. Got it. No, I think I think 80, 80 months sounds, sounds pretty pretty fine to me. And, <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I want to understand what advice would you give to founders who have you know offers from you know multi-stage funds uh, at, at at say pre-seed or seed stage? Um, it's been interesting to see the uh, competition of multi-stage funds in the pre-seed and seed space. Um, you know, you have many funds that I mean, the, the the kind of like routine pattern is for funds that have uh, public market strategies have increasingly been going private late stage and now private early stage. I, I think, you know, Tiger Global is probably the paradigm case of uh, the multi-stage fund. Um, and because their balance sheets are relatively large, it's been possible for them to uh, invest quickly um, across the early stage space in fintech um, and other tech spaces in a way that effectively indexes the space and it gives them a call option on um, taking follow-on investing with the, the seed rounds that they fund. Um, but famously, they also don't take board seats. Um, so it's, it's really similar to a passive, uh, or, or sorry, an active uh, public market strategy where you're picking winners, but you're not actually getting involved with the operations of the company. Um, it's an interesting approach. It's definitely made early stage funding more competitive. Uh, it doesn't really, impact our fund because we don't lead rounds we follow on so uh we're a little bit more agnostic as to who the lead of the round is um but that strategy generally tends to work in an environment where asset prices are generally moving upwards um when there's consolidation and there's belt tightening and companies need to come back to their investors to stretch out their runway because they have high burn rates um the multi-stage funds not being there can really hurt the ability of these businesses to continue. Um, and by kind of actively leaning out from participating in a company's operations, the multi-stage funds are generally sending the signal that um, they're not in the business of helping companies in workout situations. They're only available to continue picking winners um, you know, as winners emerge, uh, given that they've already indexed the space. Interesting, and yeah, you know, yeah. You know, I, I want to talk more about about your fund. Uh, you're a first time, uh, uh, you know, fund manager. What what advice would you give to you know new new first time fund managers who are looking at uh, raising the fund successfully? Any 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 strategies for you know pitching out to LPs which which work for you? Um, 
just know that it's it's really like any other sales cycle um, where uh, you will have to have a large top of funnel. Uh, the elapsed it's it's enterprise sales. The elapsed time for closing a deal is going to be longer than you expect it to be by a factor of you know possibly two to three x. Um, you'll need to have a lot of repeat conversations by the end of which your pitch will be very honed. Um, and you need to think about your product's competitive differentiation because you know early stage venture dollars are very commoditized at this point. Um, and you need to think about your story and why it's different from other stories, knowing that the LPs that you're talking to are probably getting pitched by many other emerging managers. Um, if you have a strong and compelling story though, it's just a numbers game. Keep having conversations, keep getting introductions, and eventually, um, you know, if you are a good emerging manager prospect, you should be able to put a fund together, even in this environment. I think it's easy for a lot of emerging managers to get discouraged by um, LP uncertainty in the market. And definitely for, you know, the next couple of months, everybody's waiting to see where the bottom is um, before making new investing decisions. But I think this is a great time to be investing and it's a good time to be starting those relationships up for when LPs are well, uh, willing to make early stage bets again. Interesting, and uh, you know, how, how do you how do you look at you know portfolio construction uh, with with your new fund? Do you do you focus on a specific sector in uh, in fintech, or you know, what what's your strategy for investing into these? Uh, our goal is to have exposure across on the order of thirty five to forty five companies out of fund one, um, so that we can um, manageably. Uh, provide support to all the founders that we're backing. Um, we'll invest about 70% um, in first rounds for companies and save about 30% of the fund for follow-on um, and taking our pro rata allocations. Got uh, percentage really matter in seed stage or you know, what, what are your thoughts on uh, you know, ownership requirements, especially when it comes to new funds? Uh, it's not an explicit target for us right now. Um, what we're focused on is uh, really aggressively canvassing the fintech space as it is, you know, in this 12 months and finding the best teams to back. Um, we don't have an ownership target because the fund is too small to credibly take a big piece of the business. You know, to put an example around that, uh, let's say we had a 1% ownership target, um, then we would have to write, a, you know, at least a $200,000 check for every business valued at 20 million. Um, yeah. If we had a 2% ownership target, you know, that would need to be a $400,000 check and we'd exhaust the fund pretty quickly and we wouldn't be able to make the same number of bets. Now that may become more relevant for fund two where we start having allocation and ownership thresholds. Um, but for fund one, it's more about developing a track record and finding the best teams to back. Got it, interesting. And uh, Nick, you, you manage your fund as well as uh, you, you run this week in FinTech. Now, how, how do you uh, how do you manage you know both the both the businesses and uh, you know what's your what's your how, what's your time management tips uh, for you know people who are trying to do multiple things? Uh, I'd say I'm still on the learning side rather than the teaching side for time management. Um, you know, I split my time evenly between those two efforts, but those initiatives actually really complement each other. The newsletter leads to a ton of inbound for the fund. Um, and the fund gives us a good uh, reason to really drill down into the most exciting innovations taking place today in the space, which makes us smarter about what's going on in fintech. Um, I think, you know, ruthless prioritization is really important for 
managing and bootstrapping, you know, two things at the same time, even one thing. Um, so what you say yes to is much less important than what you say no to. Um, you need to be able to close off opportunities and say no to everything that you know is not um, within the narrow band of where you should be spending your time um, and then prioritize within this, with that set of, uh, you know, activities that you should be spending time on. Got it. And when it comes to this week in FinTech, you, you run a newsletter and you also run events. Are you looking to expand your portfolio of uh, products, especially like, uh, you know, podcasts or, you know, other other verticals across uh, across regions? Or do you want to focus uh, just on the newsletter and the events uh, for, for the time? No, no, we're going to be launching a lot this year. So uh, we recently brought uh, Helen Femi uh, in London onto the team to run a FinTech, uh, bi-weekly FinTech news podcast. Um, we're adding more people to the team as writers, both staff writers and guest writers. Um, and we're in the process of launching an online community for fintech people that will be coming out later this year. Well, so, super interesting. L looking forward to you know engage uh, with with your newsletter and, uh, and your events. Um, uh, Nick, I quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book? Uh, favorite business book? You know, it's interesting. This actually isn't. It's not technically a business book, but I think it is honestly one of the most instructive stories for anybody, um, you know, leading a team. Um, there's a book called Team of Rivals. Uh, it's about Abraham Lincoln and how he managed his cabinet. And to put together a cabinet, he basically put together a cabinet of all the people who opposed him in multiple elections um, because he knew that these are people who would not be yes men. He knew that they were the most forward thinking individuals he could put in his cabinet at one time. And he knew that if an idea got out of the cabinet with their support, it would probably get support, um, you know, across the country because they had such a high bar for, for uh, Lincoln's ideas. They weren't people who innately agreed with them. I think it's a great, great example of management, delegation and leadership strategy um, and really how he navigated an extremely difficult situation in the Civil War. Um, and I think it cross applies very neatly to, uh, you know, business management. Uh, you know, I'm definitely going to put in, in the show notes. I'm, I'm, I'm also going to read it. Uh, I think I think Bram Lincoln was a, was a super smart guy and uh, loved the love the story. Uh, definitely uh, going to give it a read. Uh, you know, if you could go back in time when you, when you started uh, your newsletter and the fund, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? Um. To be honest, I just wish I had started investing earlier. Uh, I spent, you know, my first eight years in fintech developing a lot of domain-specific expertise that I could have leveraged as an investor to make some good decisions. But I, you know, was broke for those eight years, so I didn't really have much in the way of capital. But um, you know, if I had started angel investing earlier, I think it would have um, given me a, a much broader perspective across the field and all the innovation that was taking place in it. Yeah, no, no, absolutely, super relevant. And uh, you know, what's your favorite online tool? For example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom. I'm sorry, what was that? Uh, what's your favorite online tool? Uh, for example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom. Favorite online tool? Oh man, what do I spend all my time in? <laughs> <laughs> well, I know what I spend all my time in, but it's not my favorite online tool. It's my accounting <laughs> tool, and I do not want to talk about that. Um, honestly. Uh, well, this is, is going to sound a little bit like a cop out because I worked for Google. But Google Docs um, is just a fantastic collaboration tool. Um, it, it basically has allowed us to replace a lot of the elements of a website uh, where we host forms 
for uh, you know serving people in Google Docs. Um, we have PDFs and basically flyers and information about us all saved in publicly available Google Docs. Um, it's really you know facilitated a lot of what you know you'd ordinarily use a website or other collaboration tools to do um, on Google Workspace. That that's like the kind of conventional answer. One that I'll say that probably most people don't know about is uh, uh, UMSO, UMSO, um, that allows us to build lightweight landing pages. And we use that for hosting a lot of our online presence. Oh, I've, I've never heard about UMSO. I'm going to, I'm going to check, check that out and I'll put it down in the show notes. Uh, uh, Nick, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about this week in FinTech uh, and, uh, and the FinTech Fund? Yeah, I'm always looking to connect with new people, especially anyone interested in fintech. So Twitter DM is definitely the place to reach me. I uh, have open DMs and, and normally try to get back to people pretty quickly. Got a production of show notes. Nick, thank you so much for taking on time speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Yeah, Rohit, thank you for the invitation. I appreciate you having me on and hopefully we'll get a chance to meet in London soon. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.